All right. So we've made it into James chapter two. We're going to look to try to get through the first seven verses. Um, if we don't, that's okay. There's lots of material to cover. But um, if we do, uh, James chapter two, verses eight through uh, like about 15 or so are, are, is up after, or maybe 13, something like that, is up oh. after that. And we're ready to go with that if we need to. So uh, here's what it says in James chapter two, starting in verse one through verse seven. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Now, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, uh, you stand over there or, or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Uh, are you not... Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you've been, you belong? All right, so that's kind of the, uh, the, the crux of the situation is don't show favoritism, and it gives us an example. Now, the question is, uh, what exactly is the example? And I will tell you, the Bible scholars are kind of uh, split. I, I tend to fall in the first group not the second, but that's okay if you fall in the second. The first group says this. They think that, uh, that what James is talking about here is a worship service, a public worship service in which the church is guilty of, of uh, showing favoritism or currying favor of the wealthy in the broader community by giving them the, the, an honored seat uh, in, the, in the, the, the service. The second group has in mind because of the fact that it refers to in, in the verse seven verses about fact dragging the, the people into court, they think that they're showing favor to, uh, uh, they have in mind that it's like a church court, like a church session, you know, where uh, in first Corinthians, uh, Paul says to, uh, you know, don't take civil matters to, to court, take it instead to the church and let the church decide. Uh, help uh, become like an arbitrator, arbitrator, if you will. And so there are those that think that they have in mind that uh, James is referring to a, a court setting, a church setting, and his warning is against finding favor of the wealthy simply because they're well, they're wealthy, uh, and they leave a rather positive in, in impression. Um, now, to be honest with you, every one of us can come to a conclusion on that passage. I'm not sure which it is. Uh, as I said, I tend towards the first, um, the former versus the latter. Now, what I find fascinating about this, too, is that uh, there is definitely a connection, I think, between what James is saying here and what the Lord says. Uh, remember his, his uh, half-brother, if you will. Um, in, uh, in James chapter 5 on the Sermon on the Mount, James says, Bless, or, uh, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, and uh, in James 2.5, it says, Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? Huh. 
It sounds very similar, doesn't it? James chapter 19, I'm sorry, not James, Matthew chapter 19, um, verses 23 and 24, Jesus again said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of, of God. That's pretty strong. And then James says, in, as we've already said, in James chapter uh, 2, verses 6 and 7, but you've insulted the poor, and is not the rich the ones who are exploiting you? Are they they're not the ones that are dragging the court? The implication is that, are you sure they're believers? And aren't they the ones that are slandering the noble name by which you belong? Goes on, he also warns us against judging instead of showing mercy. There's two here. Uh, Matthew 6, 14, Jesus says, for, you, for if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. That sounds interesting. Especially because sometimes we tend to hold grudges, right? And then James chapter 2, verse 13, which we obviously haven't gotten there yet. It says, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who, does, who is, has not been merciful, mercy triumphs over judgment. So there's a definite correlation, I think, between what Jesus says and what Matthew, uh, uh, or what, uh, I'm sorry, what uh, James is saying here. Mm -hmm. uh, it's obvious that James, even if he didn't travel with Jesus and wasn't a follower of Jesus for those first three years, has absorbed a lot of what Jesus said and is reiterating some of those thoughts and exp expanding on them a little bit in his book. So the idea here is that... Uh, um, James is talking about don't show, don't show favoritism. He uses um, uh, a lot of things. That he says in the first chapter, James is talking about don't. Uh, you know, he holds up the ne necessity of acquiring wisdom and how wisdom is important to us. But in James chapter two, he's talking about uh, he's where the rubber meets the road. How are you doing? How are you doing with your with what you're doing? Are you living a life of faith, or are you living a life of dead faith? So uh, we we talk about uh, Christians enduring patience in testing in James one, in James two. We talk about practicing the truth. Are you living out the truth? Um, I, I meant to, and I, I just forgot. I think up here somewhere. Remember where they're at? It's over there. Okay. Uh, I have a, a, a book of uh, a songbook from one of the, the churches I used to serve at, and on the inside flyleaf, they they published uh, a covenant. You know, and they also had some statements about what we believe, and. Uh, so often, uh, when I when I was in, when I was at school, and some of you have been in certain churches, you you would speak a uh, you pronounce a uh, or recite a um, uh, a a creed, if you will. You know, um, I believe in God the Father. You know, and, and etc. Uh, when I was at Bob Jones, we did that every service, every every Sunday morning, and especially every uh, every every day in chapel. Uh, we'd recite uh, a creed, and then uh, we also had to sign covenants. Many of us in churches have signed covenants and have said certain things. This is what we believe, and this is how we will practice our lives. And that's all good and wonderful, 
part of the problem with, with that is that um, uh, statement of faith and a church covenant is good and useful, but they're not a substitute to doing the God's will. So often we say, well, I signed the covenant. I'm good. That's not enough. James wants us to uh, practice God's word, and he gives us a pretty simple test. Um, it, this is a test. How do you behave against uh, to, towards people in the case what you really believe about God? You cannot, in fact, you dare not separate the, the human relationship with divine fellowship. Remember First John, John 4? It said, if a man says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he has not loved his brother whom he has seen. How can he love God whom he hasn't seen? See how, how easy it is to, to, you know, it's easy for us to get caught up in, you know, well, you know, I don't like that guy. But, you know, that shows us how, how serious we are about our relationship with God as to how we treat others. Uh, one, one scholar said immature people uh, talk about their, their belief. But a mature people, a person uh, lives out his faith. So how are you doing with your living? If, if you're like me, we got a little, I got a little bit more to do. All right, I want to uh, let's see. I got to get to my right page here. I made notes. I said, okay, I'm going to skip a whole bunch and I'm going to go down here. All right, so. You notice that we've got, we've got the same potential problem with this issue of James chapter 2, uh, first seven verses about how we treat others. You ever notice that we tend to uh, uh, be uh, politically or, or uh, we tend to want to be around people who are important, you know, the, at least is what we believe is important, you know, those that are high in politics, those that are high in industry. In society, we also have, have a tendency to do that in the church. You know, we want to be, I cannot tell you, when I was pastoring, it was amazing how many people looked for me and wanted to be with me and wanted to be my friend only so they would be in the know. Only so they could show the fact that they were friends with the pastor. I had some people that were, um, that, you know, as long as I gave them tidbits of information, they were fine about being my friends, but as soon as I stopped, they no longer wanted to have anything to do with me because they weren't getting anything from me. What were they? They were they were social climbers, if you will. You know, they were they were trying to uh, get an office or get important uh, because they wanted to. Uh, you know, they felt like that the more they knew, the 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 better they off they were. Uh, Sometimes churches develop uh, cliques, friendships that don't let others in. Uh, some church members use their offices to enhance, you know, their own image of importance. How I'm so important. Sometimes they use it to get business. I, I can't tell you how many times I was approached in my early years with pyramid schemes, you know, or, or non-pyramid, at least multi-level marketing schemes. I, I was approached, I don't know how many times, to be an Amway representative, you know, because I knew so many people in the church, and it would just seem like a perfect fit for me to, you know, take care of them spiritually and take care of them physically by selling them good products, you know, at a reduced price. And by the way, you would make a lot of money, Pastor. This would be really good for you. 
I always turned them down. I, I always had a hard time selling even the, the promotional products that my, my parents and my family had as the business at a church only because I didn't want to be the guy that profited off of church money. Now, I know there are others that, that don't have a problem, and that's fine. I'm just saying, for me, as I read these verses, as I processed them in my life, I said, you know what? I'm going to make a, a choice not to do that because I want to make sure that people understand I'm interested in them spiritually. I'm not interested in making money off of them. And it's tempting. You know, I did have occasionally, if somebody came to me and said, would you help me in this particular area or come into our business and, and try to help? I would try to do that. But in general, I did not go out seeking. I tried real hard to downplay it because I didn't want to be that that guy. You know, I, I can remember, I remember one pastor, um, he had a get rich scheme that he was working on and he was trying to convince people to buy land in California back when uh, it was just outside of where all the big land had been developed. And it was like, it was projected the next 10 or 15 years, this land would be really valuable. It would really shoot up in price. And so he got into some consortium and he was busy selling us uh, on the pro pro prospect of buying land in, in speculation in California. Now, some people did, and California went through a dip. And for a number of years, there, was, there wasn't a lot of activity. And a lot of people uh, didn't make any money on their investment. Uh, if they kept it for about 20 or 30 years, they did pretty good. But you had to wait for quite a while to get your, you know. And, and he was t talking people who were retirees into investing this money because it was going to be quick. They were going to turn it over fast. <laughs> didn't happen that way. It was a shame. Uh, but anyhow. Uh, Jesus did not believe in, in respecting people. Where did Jesus hang? Did Jesus hang out with the, uh, the, you know, the, the guys from the, the temple, the top Pharisees, the top Sadducees, the priesthood is that where he spent most of his time. <laughs> Anybody awake? <laughs> Jesus owned a lot of cows, you know, the cattle of the thousand hills. So. Well, yeah, so he didn't need to do that, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. There's a there's a situ there's a situation in which we struggle to do that. There are times when we 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 want the status, and I think I I'll be honest with you. There have been times that I wanted that status. Have you ever been in a situation? It's going to be a little later here in James, but have you ever been in a situation where you assume where you're seated? And you go there and only to find out that that's not where you're seated and you're seated in some place that's less than, you know, ideal. Like you're seated behind the pillar, you know, or you're seated with the, uh, the outcasts at a wedding, you know, versus the, in, you know, the, in, the in crowd. But you assume that, you know, you know I, I, I sit here and so you'd go there and you go, oh, my, my, that's not where my name place is. My place name. I have to, and you start looking for it. And you find out you're way back at the other other end of the table, you know, or or the or the next room over. We had uh, uh, when I was a kid, I was probably elementary school, maybe junior high. Um, my father's cousin was the president of the mail carriers unit union, the national president, and. Um, his daughter was getting married in Washington, D.C. 
and we were invited uh, to the uh, uh, to the wedding and to the reception. And uh, um, we're family. And I'm telling you, we were so far away from where the action was. It wasn't funny. All there were congressmen and senators and you know, real important people in the in the union all up front, but the family was all way in the back, almost the entire family was <laughs> in the back. We, we were not real important that in that particular instance, you know. Um, we got served okay food. It was it was good food, but up at the up at the main section, man, they had like you would not believe the food they had up there. They were served just wonderful food. We had good food, but it wasn't the same, man. I'm telling you. It's pretty weird. It was pretty wild to, to realize we're family. We were treated like, you know, well, we were treated like cousins. <laughs> so were his aunts and uncles. They were kind of pushed aside too. Because it was more of a political event than anything else. So you know it, it, it's interesting how that happens. We're we're prone to judge people uh, based upon who they are, or at least who we think they are. And too often, the problem is we judge people based upon their past. But God looks at not our, just our past, especially if we've been saved. He, he looks to us not for what we were, but for what we will be. Wouldn't that be great if we looked at people with that idea of not looking at their past, but looking at their possible future? When we reached out to people, don't we tend to judge people sometimes by their outward appearance or by their jobs? And, and we think that sometimes, somehow or other, the job equates into spiritual maturity. Have you ever had that happen? I remember one of the last churches I was pastoring, uh, My one of my elders, in fact, what I consider to be my head elder, in fact, he was my head elder, was a high-low driver, had barely a high school education, had probably one of the smallest houses in, the, in our, our, our church. But man, that guy was full of wisdom. I went to him for advice all the time. He wasn't rich in, in material things, but he was incredibly rich in, in spiritual things. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I appreciate him because he didn't, t- didn't talk real well. You know, he wasn't a, a, a great orator, uh, sometimes used very poor English. But man, did he know scripture. And could he put scripture passages together to, to uh, illustrate and to highlight what he wanted to talk about? Jesus was a friend of sinners. He, he disapproved of their sins. He wasn't compromising, but he did have compassion. Do we have compassion? As a church, I have to tell you that sometimes the, the church at large, not specifically any one particular church, but the church at large has failed to be compassionate to those who are needy. It was back in the early 80s, 82, 83, something like that, that the church leaders were coming out and declaring how God was judging homosexuals because they were getting AIDS. Regardless of the fact that that wasn't the only people that were getting AIDS. And they, they 
fought against the, the, you know, they said, this is the judgment of God against them. So today, guess what? It's very hard in a lot of churches to find it, to be able to reach homosexuals because we show no compassion. We need to figure out how to show compassion. And I will tell you, this is, it's a struggle. How do you show compassion, but not acceptance of their, of their particular lifestyle or the particular sin? And it can be not just homosexual. How about anybody else? Whatever sin it might be. Do we show compassion? Are we a compassionate believer? And are, or are we rejecting those believers? You know, Isaiah 53, which is considered one of those passages in which uh, we talk about uh, Jesus as uh, being a suffering servant. Uh, he was despised and rejected by men. Isaiah 53. So who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract him, to attract us to him. Um, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He's an average guy. He, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Wasn't, wasn't born into a wealthy uh, castle. Wasn't born into a, a rich man's life. Didn't have high count, thread count in his, for his sheets. And swaddling clothes he was wrapped in when he was born. Yet he's the very glory of God. He's the Shekinah glory of God, if you will. In the Old Testament, God's glory dwelt first in the tabernacle, then it dwelt in the temple. Exodus 40, 1 Kings 8. Jesus comes to earth and God's glory resides in him. John 1. By the way, guess where God's glory is supposed to reside today here on earth? In me. In me. First yeah. Corinthians chapter six is supposed to dwell in us individually. In Ephesians two, God's glory is supposed to is supposed to dwell in the church collectively. So it's not just about individual, but individually and collectively. It's it's kind of like where James says, uh, no, first Peter, I'm sorry, first Peter two, where it says, um, that we are living stones and God lives within us. And then those stones are used to build the church. We build the, the very tabernacle of, of God based upon us. We're living stones. It's James chapter, oh, I'm sorry, first Peter chapter two verses uh, three, four, five, I think. So how are we doing with that? Let's go on. Um, look at verses, um, verses uh, five, I think. Let's look at verse five. See in verse five here, it says, listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world? God's chosen us. This involves God's grace. And again, we talk about the difference between 
you know, do we have a free will? Do, do we get, does God simply choose? I don't know how it works. I honestly don't. I've tried to figure it out. I've put all kinds of things on paper. I can't make it work to make it sense other than to say, this is what God does. He works it this way. But here's the deal. Aren't you glad that salvation is not based on my merit? Aren't you glad God doesn't treat us fairly? Yeah. It, if, if, it was, if it was based upon our merit, there would be no grace. And I'm pretty sure I wouldn't qualify. In fact, I know for certain I wouldn't qualify. Listen to a couple of passages out of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given to us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance to the riches of God's grace. This is a passage we've all, many of us have probably memorized. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. You probably know 8 and 9 especially. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not of works, so no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us. Hmm. So aren't you glad that God doesn't choose us based upon our merit or based upon our pocketbook or any other uh, judgment that he might use. He just simply says, have you chosen my son? Have you believed in him? Another thing is, so God ignores our merits. God ignores our national differences. You know, the Jews were just absolutely shocked when Peter went to the household of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 and they weren't too happy with the guy by the name of Paul when he decides to go to the Gentiles. They didn't like the fact that, uh, you know, that whole issue. That, and, and the first Jerusalem council basically was this. Did a Gentile have to become a Jew to become a Christian? That was the question of the first church council. And then the, the answer was no. And, and then, listen, God ignores social differences. Masters, slaves, rich, poor, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. James 1 says, uh, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 2 says, the poor, uh, the Lord makes the poor and makes the rich. He brings low and lifts them up. He raises up the poor out of the dust and lifts up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes. And to make them inherit the glory, the throne of glory. That's for Samuel chapter two. From, from, from a human point, God seems to choose the poor instead of the rich. In fact, in, in Judaism, the poor, the term the poor was used to describe those who had God's favor. 
And yet, we want to we want to go after the rich because maybe they'll give us a little more money. Remember what Jesus said about the, the he's, he's at the temple. He's looking at people, you know, throw their their money into the treasury. He's looking at the, the, the Pharisees and the and the Sadducees, and they're they're giving out their stuff and they're making a big deal about it. And then he sees this this little widow. She comes up with two mites. The small mite is the smallest coin that Judaism had, right? She throws those two mites in, and Jesus says, kind of as an aside to his people, they're following. He says, You see that gal over there? She's given more than all the rest. In proportion that she, she had. Isn't it interesting that often it's the, in the churches, often it's the, the, the ones who are less fortunate that give the most, at least proportionately? I find it fascinating that, they, that sometimes it's the, the, the poor who seem to fund a lot of ministries. Now, unfortunately, mm-hmm. it seems like the poor often get built in ministries too, some of these ministries. But the issue is this. It's possible to be poor in this world and rich in the next. Or it's possible to be rich in this world and poor in the next. First Timothy says this. He says uh, in chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. You know, it's also possible you could be poor in, in both in this world and you could uh, uh, you could be poor in this world and in the next, or you could be rich in this world and rich in the next. It all depends on where your heart is. Remember what Matthew says? In, in Matthew, James, Jesus says, where your heart is, there will your treasure be also. He tells you to lay up treasures for yourself in heaven where moth and rust don't corrupt, where thieves don't break in and steal. Got to imagine, I can't imagine anybody being able to ever be able to break into the the coffers of heaven. The doctrine of God's grace, if we really believe it, forces us to relate to people on the basis of God's plan and not on the basis of human merit or social status. And that's the problem that we struggle with, is we struggle with wanting to be, wanting to be relate or relating to people who are rich because they're going to help us. I think I told you this story Um and, and so I apologize for those of you who've heard it probably for the fifth or sixth or maybe hundredth time. But in one of my churches, we were, um, we had a family that was considered the, the richest family in the church. I'm not sure they were, but they, they kind of led everybody to believe that. And, and they were always taking care of, there was a shortfall. They would often take care of the shortfall in whatever ministry might be. They were very gracious in giving uh, of their money. But the, the problem was they also let everyone know it. And uh, the time came when the gentleman uh, got another job that took him out of state. Uh-oh. 
Hmm. And uh, he told me that um, he didn't want to leave us in a lurch. And so he says, I'm telling you what I'm going to do is, is I'm going to give you uh, for the next 12 months, I will give you, uh, you know, 12, I will give you 100 percent and I'll, I'll take off a 12 the next month. So you have 11 out of 12 and then, you know, on down till it was the last month. We only got one twelfth of whatever is his tithe and offering was for the, for the year. I said, that's fine. Whatever, whatever works for you, it doesn't matter. You know, we're, we're God will take care of us. So boy, oh boy, the treasurer of the church just came unglued when he found out they were leaving and, you know, woe is us and what are we going to do? We're not going to have enough money to be able to meet, meet our budget. And other people were, you know, were, and so I, I talked about the fact that, you know, the problem folks is that God did not tell us that in God, it, that in the Paluskis we trust, it's in God we trust. Why don't we put it to this and say, folks, let's reach out and figure out what, what is it that God wants you to give and then give it to him. And if he tells you don't increase your giving, that's fine. Don't increase it. But if he tells you to give, to give more, then give more. You know that that year they only gave one check when they left? Those 11 other checks never appeared. Nothing. But guess what happened? Our, incre- our, our giving increased significantly. We didn't, we didn't lose anything. We, we ended up with more money than we, than we started with that year. God took care of us. Because we just reached out and said, folks, what, here's the need. Whatever you feel best to do, do it. And if whatever he tells you, whatever God tells you, don't it, don't do anything different. It's amazing. God takes care of us. Sometimes God takes care of us in ways we don't expect. You know, I, I'm amazed how God has taken, how God has used this group and so a few others th- to help fund the ministry of giving Bibles around the world now. That, you know, and it isn't like, I, I hope no one has felt like we've gone out and said, hey, would you give us some more money? Other than saying, here's the need. What do you do? What God lays you on your heart to do. And then, and God's taking care of us. So the problem is, is often we tend to. Uh, we tend to get in, upset, insulted by by other people. Uh, we tend to drag people into uh, into the courts. Um, in verse six, powerful people do this. I told you about a church doing that to a group of guys that had made a lot of money off the church. Uh, I think it was last week. Um, people slander the name of Christ. You know, especially people who have a lot of money sometimes slander the name of Christ. Uh, he says, uh, "Here's what James says." He says about about the potential of the wealthy. They're oppressive. They, they use the laws to get their own way and they blaspheme God's name. It's pretty, pretty strong. It, Jesus says, you know, it's easier for a rich man to, to go through the eye, you know, a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to, to become saved. Doesn't mean, by the way, that a rich man cannot be saved. It doesn't mean that a, a, a person who has an exorbitant amount of wealth will never be a believer. It just says it's harder for them. Why? It's harder because we tend to rely on our riches 
to get us through whatever that is. We think that we can, you know, it, 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 it's the same thing that you and I go through as we're reaching more closer and closer to retirement age. We're looking going, do I have enough money to make it to the end of my life? And, and we struggle with that. And yet God says, you know what? It's okay. I'll take care of you. I will provide all your needs. Now, does that mean we need to be foolish about what we do? No. But it's interesting well, that, yeah. Do you mind if I interject something? I got sure. a, a quote, Go quote here from Dave Ramsey. I, I like listening to him. So he, he said, he, he talked about this, a similar verse that you just mentioned in, in Luke, where it said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? And then he mentions the eye of the needle and the camel. And then Dave went on to say, uh, many people use this passage to make the wealthy feel guilty for their financial success. And I guess that means we should all aim to be poor, right? But did you know the majority of Americans earn an annual salary that puts them in the top 1% of the world's wealth? According to that in interpretation, nobody in America earning more than $34,000 a year will enter the kingdom of God. He said, that's crazy. It, it contradicts the very clear teaching that God's grace is sufficient. And then he says, if we stop reading there, we miss the whole point. And then, uh, but then he went on to say, the, this passage doesn't condemn wealth at all. It's Jesus's way of letting the crowd know that none of them can get to heaven by their own effort, but by grace alone. And let's not forget that a few, just a handful of verses later, Zacchaeus, a rich tax collecting crook, accepted Christ and inherited the kingdom of God because of the grace of Jesus. God truly does make the impossible possible. Absolutely. And, you know, think about the fact that Matthew was also a tax collector. So we have to assume that Matthew was fairly well off you know, at one point in time. So, you know, yeah, riches don't necessarily keep you from the kingdom. It just might be harder. Remember the, the, the rich young man comes to, to, to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looks at him and says, well, and he knows the man's heart. And the heart is he's wrapped up in his riches, right? He says, well, give all you have to the poor. He doesn't tell every rich person to do that. He's looking at one particular person, one particular situation and said, okay, you are relying more on this than on me. So show me that you're really willing... It's like I told you before. I think I've told you that. I know I've told you this. There have been, when I first started thinking God was calling me to ministry, I was doing fairly well financially. And every time it looked like God was going to call me to ministry, I, I had to fight with, was I willing to live a life different than what I was used to? Mm -hmm. And was my wife willing to do that? And were we willing to commit ourselves to say, okay, God, we we love you and we're willing to serve you even though it means that our lifestyle has to change drastically. Now, God has never asked me. He's always asked me if I'm willing. He's never made me do that. I've always been fairly well paid. And sometimes I wasn't fairly well paid, but I, but I was at that time, I was also part-time and I was, I was working full-time as well. So, you know, and I, the money wasn't important to me, but but when I was paid full time, I did fairly well. I was it, I I wasn't rich, and I, and I had to budget my money, but but God took care of me. And but you know the whole issue was was I willing to change my lifestyle? Mm -hmm. 
And and what's more important in my life? Is it my my money? Is it my my house, my boat, my family? What what, what is it? But look and at look at people in scripture, Val, that you know, God took, you know, it either came from a wealthy family like Daniel or 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 even even Joseph, like Joseph was willing, you know, he, he accepted where he was at, but then God lifted him up into where he was second to Pharaoh. Yep. So I'm, you know, and like Job was, was was very wealthy. I mean, I'm thinking of you know David, who was a shepherd, and God lifted him up, and uh, you know he was a, they submitted to God, and God was able to use their you know their talent or their wealth or whatever you know their use them. To, to change things for the better, the way he wanted, the way God wanted them. Sometimes God, you know, it, it, God has plans for all of us. And God, I think God's plan is always better than what we think it is. Um, but we have to be willing to, what are you willing to give up? What's more important? God's will or my pocketbook? Uh, or or whatever put put something else in there whatever maybe it's maybe it's your family maybe it's your cottage maybe it's your new car and you, you know um I, I struggled with that in my early in before you know god really kind of called me into my ministry you gotta take off go for it guys um but the issue is god says love me more than these and by the way love the fellowship more than these all right we're gonna you know val when you you know i just just when you when you think about you know, all that you've got in this in this world and then you have you know a health crisis come up uh it <laughs> doesn't mean anything anymore oh yeah yeah and, and, gee i wonder who i wonder why you think that <laughs> <laughs> but you know, and I, I remember i don't know if any of you have taken the financial peace university which was yeah, Dave Ramsey course. Uh, but yeah, I probably, we took it, Janet and I took it much too late in life. I mean, we were like probably in our, I don't know, late fifties or something when we took it, or maybe even 60, uh, probably late fifties. Uh, but he had a saying, which I, I thought was great. It's, his saying was, uh, save like no one else so you can give like no one else. That's good. That's a good, good quote. I like that. I like that. All right, we're going to stop the recording.